What story is the world not getting? I'm Dr. Adrienne McKeon, AKA the Story Whisperer. As a creation coach, my purpose is to help humans reconnect to themselves, to each other, and to the boundless creative energy that flows through each and every one of us. By releasing our unique perspectives and relatable experiences in the form of inspirational stories, not only do we give the world a precious gift that is ours alone to give, we help them really get our core message and come to a deeper understanding of the universal wisdom within it. Are you ready to reconnect? Good, because that's allowed. Hey everyone, welcome to the That's Allowed podcast. I'm your hostess, Adrienne McKeon, and we are here with Steve Super. Please, Hi. Steve, introduce yourself, sir. Hi, uh, my name is Steve Super. I was born in England, as you can probably tell from the accent, and I am 60 years of age. I'm an old duck, an old guy. So I have a very interesting journey that I'd love to share with your listeners and obviously with you. And hopefully you find it interesting and hopefully there's some lessons you can take from it. But uh, I'm very delighted to be here. Fantastic. So glad to have you on. So we'll start with the usual question. Steve, okay. what's the story you're not telling? Okay. So um, to put things in a nutshell, my brief story or the outline of my story is um, I came to America about 27 years ago. And uh, came here very open-eyed, uh, wanting to live the American dream. Mm -hmm. And for the first 15 of those 27 years, that's exactly what I did. I had a great job. I started some companies. I recruited over 10,000 people in a 12-year period. and managed them all and really built companies and loved my life here. And unfortunately... I stumbled across the year 2008. Now, 2008 is a very, uh, is a key date for me because I was in the mortgage industry. And as you know, the mortgage industry collapsed. So I went from, exactly. So I went from having multiple houses and a hell of a lot of assets and never worrying about money in the space of six months to being completely homeless completely without friends without money without anything and what i had what i don't tell people when i recount the story is that prior to my being homeless i was a very arrogant very self-centered very me 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 and that was all i focused on to the cost of relationships friendships What's interesting is, prior to me being homeless, when I was in a good position, I literally thought I had thousands of friends. I really did. But what I didn't realize is I was buying these friends. Literally. I would take 200 people out for dinner in LA, buy a restaurant, shut it down, blah, blah, blah. I thought I was the most popular guy in the world. But when I became homeless and I needed to borrow a shower, not money, never ask for money. What I did ask for, and this is something I know so well about homeless people, is that the thing that you need the most when you do become homeless is a shower. Mm -hmm. People don't think of that, but it's true. You want to be clean. Do you think I had one friend who said to me, Steve, borrow my shower? 
No one, not one. And it hurt me, it hurt me for a long time, but getting out of that position and into a much better position again, I began to study why nobody came to help me or offer anything and just let me be, I became invisible. And I think a lot of that was due to my behavior prior to becoming homeless. Because a lot of people who have money are very arrogant, very self-centered, they tread on people, and there's such a thing as karma. And I'll tell you what, I, I'll, I know I'm talking a lot, but I always used to think um, when I was in my car and I was, at, well, when I was homeless after I lost my car, um, I always used to think that karma brought this on myself. Never blamed anyone but myself and my attitude and the way I looked at life. So every story has a subtext and you just pulled mine out of me completely in about five seconds. <laughs> That's what I do. Yeah, you're really good. Okay. (laughs) So so the next question I usually ask is, where does it begin for you? But what's interesting is you've kind of talked about the subtext here. And so what I want to ask instead is, can you give us an example of the kind of person you were before you became homeless? Sure. Now, I'm not going to say in my defense, because this is pretty indefensible, However, um, bear in mind, I was running very large companies. So if somebody couldn't come to work, if somebody had an issue, a personal issue, or a family illness, or some other commitment that was stopping them coming to work, um, I would be relentless and, and just make them come. I didn't want to know the excuse. I didn't want to know the reasons why. Just, you better be here. Because if you're not here within two hours, goodbye. Right. And that's what I mean. There was no empathy. There was no mm-hmm. sympathy. There was no looking at people like human beings. And we're all fallible. But I thought because I was on such a ride and I was so great and I was making so much money, I could do anything I want. That's why, and this, again, is another subtext thing. That's why I tend to sometimes look at very rich and powerful people and understand why they do some of the things that they do, because they do feel powerful. Nothing can touch them. When you're talking about athletes, high-end CEOs, people who have made a fortune, they do have this element about them that feels they're indestructible. And usually they get found out, by the way, just like I did. And I'm just thinking about this. I I could be wrong. Not every CEO is a bad person. Not every athlete is a bad person. But they do live in a different world to the world that you and I experience on a daily basis, if that makes sense. So I guess my my foible, my weakness was, uh, although I didn't think it was a weakness, was just treating people as if they were commodities that I could move around from place to place, if that makes sense. Yeah. Lord, I sound like a nasty person. <laughs> well, then let's, let's move Terrible. forward. <laughs> Sorry so, about that. So Go. when did the tide turn? Where did you, what was the point where you realized, wow, it's not just that I'm homeless. It's that I need to change who I am to become would, would, a better person. Would you be really impressed if I could give you two actual dates? Would that Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. So the first date was, um, I'm Jewish, by the way. Mm -hmm. So not highly religious, but I am Jewish. And one thing I do every year 
is I fast on Yom Kippur. Most Jews do, whether you're religious or not. So on this particular year, when I was homeless, it wasn't so difficult to fast because, to be honest with you, most days were like that. But um, I fasted all day for Yom Kippur. And I remember when the fast ended, traditionally, you always have a big meal. Jewish people have a big meal at the end of the fast. I couldn't even afford a cup of coffee. Hmm. And I remember, and this sounds a little bit strange, but I remember talking to God. And I'm not particularly religious, so please don't think I'm coming at you from that angle. And if you are religious, great. Everybody's different. But I remember talking to God. And I remember saying on my birthday, uh, on Yom Kippur, rather, um, please just help me out in this situation. Just get me one meal. I'll do anything you want. I'll I'll become a a religious Jew. I'll grow my hair long. I'll wear a hat. Everything. I threw the whole book at it. And that was the first day. And funnily enough, although there was no response, which is what you'd expect, the following day, I began to feel a little bit better. Even though I didn't have any food, the gloom kind of lifted. But it really moved me on my birthday. That was the key day for me. So I remember on my birthday, again, funnily enough, the two days I spoke to God in the six months I was homeless. So on my birthday, another conversation with him, but this one was different. So this one, I said to him, let's do a deal with each other. Not that I'm in a position to do a deal, but here's the deal. The deal is this. If you help me get out of this situation, I promise you, I give you my word. Not only will I be a different person moving forward, but I will go out of my way to find people who are in a similar situation to me and try and help them. Now, this hasn't always been easy, just so you know. I imagine. And please understand, I'm not a saint. I'm not virtuous. I'm just... It was something I agreed with God. I did get out of the car uh, and I've kept my word. Unfortunately, some of my friends, there are new friends now and I've got friends and I've got a beautiful wife. They're very skeptical because typically if a homeless person comes up to me and asks for money, I never say, what do you want it for? Or you need to get your life in order? Or what are you going to buy? None of those things. I put my hand in my pocket and give them. But I'm always surrounded by doubters. People say, oh, they'll just take the money and buy drugs or they'll go and buy cigarettes. So, you know what? That's up to them. That's their choice. All I can do is help. And thank God I'm in a position to do that now. I wasn't then and nobody helped me, but I I am in a position now. Yeah. What do you think? I think I that's some thoughts going around in your head. Yeah, I mean, I think that's beautiful, and I think I think it's wonderful that you've kept that 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 bargain. Um, you know, the question of like, uh, are you religious? Um, I'm a very spiritual person. I'll say that. Um, my family is Jewish, but I didn't know that until I was 16 years old. So that's a whole other story. <laughs> wow. So I didn't grow up doing any any religious anything. Right. But I've always felt that God is within all of us and that we, you know, we, we are, everything is one, right? And so we are God, we are all God. And so making that bargain with God was like making that bargain with yourself. That's true, actually. That's a very good point. It is a good point. It's a very good point. And I hadn't even reflected on that, but you're right. You're right. And thank God, again, I'm not the wealthiest person on the planet by any means, but 
thank God I'm healthy. I have a lovely family and I'm able to help people. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's that helping makes you feel stronger. It makes you feel better. It cleanses you, you know, and one thing I know when, before I came to the United States to live the American dream, I remember my mother uh, saying to me, America's a tough place. It can either go two ways. You can either do really well, make a lot of money, live that American dream, be happy ever after, or you can fail. And in America, if you fail or you get ill or you have issues or problems, it's not predominantly a socialist country. Nobody's going to help you. You have to help yourself. And it's a different mindset, If that, again, if yeah. that makes sense to you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're working without a net here. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Which can be thrilling, but mm-hmm. it can also be very, very frightening. Yeah. Not everybody in this country is set up to deal with that situation. Yeah. And those are the people that truly need help. And by the way, when I say I, I help people, not just homeless, people who I consider to be less fortunate, people who are having some sort of struggle, and I identify with them because I've been there. You know, I've had it. It's happened to me. And good things, well, bad things can happen to good people. You know, in 2008, when I tell people I was homeless, they go, oh, that's terrible. But you know what? I was not the only homeless people. There were people that had been working 20, 30 years that had families and good jobs. But all of a sudden, everything went you know, and, and they didn't know what to do or how to cope with it. Yeah. The sad thing is, and I hate to mention this, and I, I don't want to be a, a bearer of bad news, but I honestly believe in my heart that COVID 2.0 is very much going to lead that way as well, only yeah. have a greater impact on the nation. I yeah. really do. And that's what scares me. Yeah. I think this is probably just a trial run. I did. Well, and, you know, in the United Kingdom, they've gone back to their second lockdown. Do you know that? Yeah. On COVID? Yeah. And it's, I mean, I have uh, two businesses, which I not particularly want to talk about. One of them is a, a loan business. So we provide loans for businesses in need. Mm-hmm. And I speak to business owners every day. And again, the stories that I get, mm. heartbreaking. Yeah. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Just... Literally, I've many times wiped my eyes, shed a tear, and you know, there's a lot of good people caught up in what's going on at the moment. And I think it's up to us, the stronger people, to to really rally round and and offer as much help and support as we can. And it doesn't have to just be financial or even financial. Yeah. There are other ways we can help people. And I just think we've got to step up. I really do. One more thing I want to say before you next question um is one thing i will tell you is that i have changed the definition of rich since i've been homeless mm-hmm. so rich to me prior to being homeless was obviously money and objects and things that i could keep and hoard and have rich to me now um i'm a very happily married man i have two great kids one of them is at university the one's about to go to university and it's a house full of love. And that honestly, honestly makes me feel rich. And the funny thing is, the businesses that I have have prospered 
not because I've focused so much on them, but I haven't focused on the money element. I've focused more on the goodwill element. And again, please, I, I don't want to come across as being pious or virtuous or I'm not. I'm just a normal person like anybody else. Well, the next question that I usually ask, you've just answered, which is how did this change you? Yeah. So, so I want to go on to the next question, which is who needs to hear it? Who needs to hear this story? Um, that's a great question. You, are, you, you asked some really great questions. <laughs> Thank you. Who needs to hear it? Well, I think the first person that needs to hear it is me, obviously. Mm. Um, I think that there are a lot of people out there at the moment that are very scared and very fearful of what's going on around them. Yeah. I really do. And I know there are a lot of people who are looking at their wallets and their bank accounts and thinking, the money's going to run out. What do we do? I have a family. How am I going to feed them? You know, I understand all of this. I haven't got any magical solutions. I mean, I do have a company that does uh, credit repair and that does help a lot of people. But at the end of the day, um, I think we have to come together as a community. I really do. And I think as a community, we have to look after our weakest people. So, and I don't mean weakest in a bad way. I mean, weakest as in people who need that help and support. So if you're asking me who I think should listen to this, it's not the people who need the support. It's the people who should be stepping up, providing the support, if that makes sense. Again, Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think everyone is that person, you know, everyone can help someone who's vulnerable. I agree even if they're vulnerable themselves. I think sometimes, you know, uh, my mother does a lot of work with homeless people. And one mm. of the things that they say over and over is, I just wish people would look me in the eye. Well, that's I wish it. people would just acknowledge me as a human being mm-hmm. and respond to me, even if they say no, <laughs> just to have that acknowledgement that, but yes, you, I hear you. But you know what? You make such a valid point. And I have to tell you, uh, how can I say this without sounding bad? First of all, I love this country. I'm a United States citizen, proud to be a citizen. I've only been back to England once since I came here. And this is my country. I may speak with a British accent, but this is my country, which also validates me to speak about it freely. Yeah. And I have to tell you, um, I think America is probably the place where homeless people are ignored the most, are made invisible. I've got to be honest. I know we live in a capitalist society and we're not talking politics now. I get that. But it's, again, it's the American dream. If you're making it, everybody wants to be around you. They love you. They're your friend. They want to sniff you. You know how it goes. This is why this, by the way, if you take this a step further, look at the social media influencers. Think about it for a minute. Everybody wants to be Kim Kardashian. They can't be, so they buy her makeup, her dresses. I know it's ridiculous, but this is how we work in this country. Successful people are the idols, the invincibles. Everybody else, pretty much invisible. Yeah. And that's the sad truth. And, And you're right, that's the biggest issue, or one of the biggest issues that we're facing in this country. How do we deal with homeless 
learn the situation. We can't turn around and say, well, everybody who's homeless is on drugs. I'm, I'm so tired of hearing that. And it's absolute rubbish. It really- and also, P.S., drugs, being on drugs is a symptom of a problem that usually stems from trauma, right? Mm-hmm. So again, you know, because someone's addicted to drugs, that doesn't mean they're a worthless person or not worth helping. Exactly. exactly. There's someone who's sick and needs help. Where, do you mind me asking, where, where do you actually live? What, what area? I am in Seattle. Are you in Seattle? Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I don't know how things are in Seattle, but I'm in LA. And uh, here, the home situation is terrible. And I have to tell you, everybody turns a blind eye to them. Yeah. Everybody. Not only a blind eye, but also, you know, the, there's a lot of tent cities going on. I don't know Seattle. I understand that. I, believe me, I was like days away from finding a tent myself. Yeah. So again, I would never criticize it. But we've got to stop being critical and saying, oh, these people are ghastly. You know, we've got to find real remedies for them and really help them. Not just pay, you know, lip service to it, but we've actually got to do something. Yeah. So anything I can do um, within my scope, then I'm going to try and do it. You know. What do you think is the best solution to homelessness? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, much smarter people have been trying this <laughs> much longer than me. I'm just, I have strong opinions yeah. around this. This is why. I yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I just feel that you know when we look at uh, state budgets, when we look at the country budgets, when we look at the deficit, we look at everything else. Again, not to compare England to America, because I'm not going to do that. But the, there's two areas where England actually beats America. And I'll tell you, tell you two. First of all, and again, another issue to me personally, is the way this country treats its vets. Mm-hmm. I hate the way we treat our vets. Mm-hmm. You know, they go through hell and back for us, and they come back, and they're another sector of society that's invisible. England will will support and look after its vets a lot better. That's number one. But number two, and here's here's the key point. In England, if you haven't got enough money, you can't afford to live, they will give you housing. The government gives you housing, either Mm -hmm. subsidised housing or free housing. Now, there is so much land in this country, so much land that's doing nothing. So many houses that are sitting empty. There you go. Let, let's start building for homeless people. Let's start yeah. helping them. Let's start picking up our weak and our poor and putting an arm around them and, and showing them that there's compassion around here, you know, that people do care. Now, I'm just one guy in LA telling you this. I, I can't do it by myself, but if there's a groundswell of opinion, you can get things done. I really do believe that. Yeah. I think there's definitely been some pilot programs, the housing first model of saying, let's just put people into housing and first (laughs) and then help them get back on their feet because it's really, really difficult to get a job, to get any kind of stability when you don't have housing. Oh, I have have a story for you. You Yes. Okay. So here's a story. It's not, not a particularly nice story. So, it's funny how I talk about kismet because here's a, here's a kismet type story. So eventually I got out of my homeless situation. And I guess if you're interested, I can tell you about it. It's not that interesting, but I did get out of it. And the way that I got out of it is I applied for a job 
where they were looking for experienced people in a field where there was a lot of money being made. And I had zero experience in this field. But when you're homeless and you've got nothing to do and nowhere to go, you think to yourself, what have I got to lose? Right. So I remember finding this uh, LA Times in a Starbucks. When I wasn't living on the street, I was living in Starbucks. That's where I used to have a wash every morning in Starbucks. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I get this LA Times out. I'm going through the job. Something I've got to find something. Something's got to break here. And I saw this great job. It's a company uh, that sell metals, precious metals, gold, silver. And they were looking for experienced people. And that one thing I knew is that as the stock market was collapsing, the price of gold and silver was going up and up. So these were jobs where people were making a lot of money. Only problem is I had no experience. But I applied and made up a job uh, and a series of, of experience that I didn't have. And it was enough to get me an interview. I fooled them. I got an interview. <laughs> so I go into the interview and I'm sat there and there are two guys who own this company. So they're asking me these questions. And after about five minutes, I said, look, guys, I, I got to be honest here. You know, I, I have zero experience, but I'll work for you for nothing. Give me three months of letting me, because I thought at this stage, what have I got to lose? Right. Three months. I can be a junior. I can learn stuff. Now, bear in mind, I had 30 years experience of selling, of being a CEO, a very high of course, yeah. But now you've got to do what you've got to do. So I said, I'll be the office junior. You don't have to pay me. I won't talk to anyone. I'll just sit in the background and learn. Just give me that chance. So the two men who own the company looked at each other, and the first one said, I like this guy. <laughs> I like him. He's got balls. He's a right? top cookie. And you know what? All right. So he made it all up. But he admitted it. And I like what he's saying. I want to give him the job. Unfortunately, the second partner was completely the opposite. Well, I don't like him. He's a liar. He's, he tells stuff that isn't true. What happens if he's like this with our clients? And I could understand that. So I'm in the middle of this interview and these two guys are arguing with each other. Give him a job. Don't give him a job. Give him a job. No. Eventually, I got the job, which is great. Except three days later after getting the job, the guy that liked me mm -hmm. said that he was going away to France for six months on holiday. <laughs> leaving me with the guy who hated my guts. Right. So here's the second story. Here's the second part of the story. So every day I came in, you know, he, he called me on the phone. There was a lot of people who worked there. He called me on the phone. He goes, uh, you better be working hard because I don't like you and you're probably not going to stay. And by the way, I was still homeless at this time. Mm -hmm. So here's where I made my big, big mistake. <clears throat> I almost found an, or someone who was willing to let me stay in an apartment for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. I still had some stuff that was all over the street and everything. Yeah. So I asked my friend if I could borrow his car to put my stuff in. Then I was going to go to work. And then after work, I was going to go to the apartment, unload my stuff and stay in my new place. The only problem was that when I arrived nice and early for work, the other guy, the guy who didn't like me, pulled up right next to me. And he looked at my car and he could see. He knew I was homeless. It was so obvious. Yeah. He didn't say anything. 
So we go inside and half the day goes by and uh, he calls me on the phone again. He said, can you come to my office? So I thought, "Uh uh-oh. So I go to his office and this is what he said to me, word for word. He said, Steve, I want you to know that I know you're homeless. And I also want you to know it makes no difference whatsoever. I do not like you and I want to fire you. (laughs) That's what he said. Literally, that's what he said. It doesn't make any difference. Um, Now, here's the irony of the story. I I was coming up to that three-month period, so they they would have had to have paid me beyond the three months. Yeah. Um, And I really liked it. I liked the job. I thought, I can really do that. I can make myself successful. I can get back on top. Um, And I thought, but they're probably going to fire me. As luck would have it, and this is where Kismet or Bean Bichette comes into play, the top sales guy in the company, who, by the way, was the only guy that spoke to me in the three months I was there, was, hey, how are you doing, Bob? And really nice guy. He moved company. And I don't know why he did this, but he said to the new company, if you're going to take me, you have to take Steve as well. Wow. And the rest is history. And, and from there, <laughs> everything looked up and up and up. But it's funny how many things happen to you in your life that you think back. And, and I don't, listen, I don't hold any grudges against the guy who didn't like me. It's, you know what? Life moves on. Yeah. Life is too short to be angry or to hate anyone. I Absolutely. Really- There's a great lesson in there that I want to uh, drill down on a little bit more, okay. which is don't disqualify yourself for something before you've even tried. I think we often do this to ourselves. We see, you know, that they're asking for experience. We don't have the experience. And so we don't even try. We just say, yeah, forget about it. I, um, I love to tell the story of when I got a Fulbright scholarship because I had no idea what one was and I applied for it just thinking, oh, this is cool. I can go anywhere and, you know, do whatever I want and just applied for it, having no idea that it was prestigious or interesting, you know, to other people at all. (laughs) And, and if I had known, if I had had any inkling that it was so competitive when I applied for, I never would have applied. Oh, I would have been like, oh, no, no, no. I would have talked myself out of it, thought, you know, oh, this is for super smart people. I'm not one of those people. <laughs> right? And I never would have had that experience of getting a Fulbright scholarship. And so I always say to people, you know, when you look at something, don't see the ways that you are disqualified from it. See the ways that you are qualified from it and build from there. That's a great point. That's an awesome point. Yeah. That Thank is you. A, a great <laughs> point as well. Yeah. And good job to you too. That was wonderful. Hey, so I have a question for you. Yeah. Okay. What was your moment? What was your moment when you sat back and started reflecting? Has anyone asked you that in your own podcast? I'm no, they curious. haven't. I, I'm, I'm, there, are, there are many moments, but, um, you know, I, so, so I wrote a book about uh, an experience I had where I, I married a guy and it turned out very badly. <laughs> yeah, I've been there as well. No, so I didn't marry the, a guy, but it turned out right. well. <laughs> on the Fulbright Scholarship, I went to Africa. Um, the rest is history. But I, uh, so I ended up in a very, very dangerous situation while I was in Africa. Wow. And he and I really trauma bonded during that experience. And so then uh, we ended up in this relationship that I, I, I missed all the red flags, basically, because I was so caught up in the drama of what was going on. And I found myself in this really abusive relationship. Yeah. 
And I had this moment where I almost died. I mean, he, he almost killed me. Oh, Lord, I'm sorry. Well, hey, I'm fine now, right? Uh, <laughs> so, but, but there was this moment where I realized, the, I chose this. This is not like, you know, someone jumped out of the woods and grabbed me. This is the person I picked. Wow. I chose this life for myself. Why am I allowing people to treat me this way? And it took a while, you know, it was a, a definitely a process from there of figuring out and uh, excavating these layers of this. But I realized in that moment, you know, you, you teach people how to treat you. Oh, that's interesting. And it wasn't just him, you know, this was not the first time I had ended up in an abusive situation and it would not be the last time. And I realized, you know, little by little, wait a second, the common denominator in this situation yeah. Yeah, I get right it. here. Do you think, because, you know, it's funny, it's that my wife is a, a coping advocate. She mm -hmm. has uh, narcolepsy and seven different autoimmune diseases. Wow. Um, and she helps people who have chronic illness. Yeah. And, stuff. and it's interesting, by the way, just on a side note, you're talking about abusive people. And I, I was about to tell you this, but I own a credit repair company, and there are two <laughs> types of people in particular we offer our services for uh, free. One, yeah. is vet, one is vets that I've just mentioned. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the second one is abusive women, uh, women that have been abused. Right. And the reason for that is um, my wife worked in a shelter for three years. And, I, and uh, when I first met my wife, I knew nothing about this. I was so naive. And the stories that she's told me and the things that have happened to people, it just you know so upsetting it really yeah. so yeah. do you think so mentally how do you think you got out of that that situation i'm not talking about the relationship but right never being in that situation again yeah i won't i won't give away the ending of the book but i will say, <laughs> obviously i did get out um and from there the the process was one of recognizing oh boy i don't like myself very much no, no, no. I have allowed people to treat me this way because I felt I deserved it. Right. And because I treat myself not very well and they see this and they take their cue from that. Right. And so the process of loving yourself, and it sounds so cheesy, you know, to say that like that. Like, oh, very American. Love yourself. That is very American. That's the first thing I learned when I came. Right? <laughs> we hate that stuff. I do. I'm like, like for uh, me, England is completely different, you know. It's right. Just, if you say to England, if you say in England, you know, you've got to love yourself, they'd probably hit you or something. Yeah? <laughs> right. So yeah, it is very American, but it's very right. You are right. But it's really true. And that is uh, honestly the, the first and hardest step is just to learn self-love and self-respect and self-acceptance. Because the thing is what we want to do, especially as Americans, I think we do this thing where we're like, well, then I have to achieve this or accomplish this so that I can respect myself or love myself. Yeah. Well, guess what? In order to achieve that thing, in order to get to there, you have to accept where you are. You can't actually start from anywhere but where you are right now. That's a great point. And it is that acceptance, that ability to say, hey, here's where I am. Here's where I'm going that allows you to form a plan. 
So, so without being too personal, I don't want to be yeah. personal. Are you in a relationship currently? Yes, and it is wonderful. Oh, <laughs> so, here, so here's my question on that then. How, how did you change the parameters at the get-go to make mm-hmm. sure that wouldn't happen to you again? I'm, I'm curious if you don't mind. Yeah, well, and I'm actually writing a second book, which is <laughs> Don't buy the book, just listen to the Okay, fine. But, but, but what, I, what I tell people in there is, you know, like, learn from me, right? I, I missed all of the red flags. But one of the reasons that you don't see those red flags is because, again, you're looking at everything through rose-colored glasses, right? You want, you want someone to save you. You're looking for a savior. And so you see a savior in everyone that you meet. Mm-hmm. And so the trick is you have to save yourself first. That's right. That's really <laughs> well put. That is really well put. Yeah. My wife, by the way, because she taught us a lot about this as well, is, uh, and that always has been very, uh, she sets boundaries very, very openly. Yeah. From the beginning, you know, and she'll say, you know, you can do this, you can do that, but I don't want you talking to me like this, or I don't mm-hmm. want you saying this because it offends me and this is the reason why. I think as well, I, I mean, I'm an old guy now and I'm very lucky my, my wife is, lovely, as I said, um, but I never had these conversations in prior relationships that I was in. Yeah. You know, I'm lucky. I found love at the age of like, well, 50s. In my 50s, I found love. Um, But we work at it. We really, really do. You know, we do talk about boundaries. We do talk about how we react to each other at times because we're not perfect. We're far from perfect. And we still shout at each other a little bit here or there. But (laughs) um, we have an agreement never to go to bed angry with each other. And and thank God we've been together a long time now. We keep that. That's the one thing we absolutely... It's very important. And and this is just between you and me, and I don't want anyone else to say they heard this. Cuddling. Cuddling is huge. Seriously. So important. We have at least... And I know this sounds weird when we tell people... We spend at least uh, an hour a day, not not in one go, but in, and I'm not talking about cuddling as in a, a sexual thing. No, I'm talking about cuddling on the couch. Touch. That's it. <laughs> Absolutely. It's Our huge. touch and the emotion and the endorphins it gives off, it, it can change a whole relationship. So. Yeah. Wow, so, we're really uh, taking a turn. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to do two little tools, though, for the audience listening at home. So these are two little relationship tools that have really, really helped me. And you reminded me of both of these and what oh. you just said. So the first one is about boundary setting, because a lot of people misunderstand what a boundary is. A boundary isn't just saying, I don't like that. Please don't do that. Because when you say, please don't do that, you're actually giving the boundary to the other person oh. to keep safe. A boundary oh. is when you say... I don't like that. And so next time that happens, here's how I'm going to respond. Yeah, that's here's the way what, she says it. Right. Here's what I'm going to do to <laughs> keep myself it, safe. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, that's exactly the way she says it. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. it's really important because it, it, it acknowledges, I recognize that this is me. I'm the one who, who wants things this way. And so I'm responsible for maintaining this boundary. I'm not putting it off onto you. So that's number one. Number two is... Oh, what was it? Shoot. Now I'm going to forget. Oh, yes. So you were talking about not going to bed angry and the power of touch. One thing I found is that if I'm having, you know, a disagreement or something with, with my husband, I take his hands in my hands and we do not let go of each other's hands while we have this conversation. 
That's so cool. <laughs> it really works. That is because so if you're cool. holding someone's hand and looking them in the eye, it's a lot harder to yell or scream or slam the door or do any dumb stuff yeah, like that. Right. That's cool. Yeah. It keeps that connection of like, no, 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 it's me and I love you and I want to work through this. Wow. Yeah. That so. is really cool. That is really cool. All right. Well, I don't. Relationship. <laughs> so. Let's, okay, I want to get back on track here. So what do you, what would you say is the main message or takeaway from your story? Um, Don't be a dick. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank, you. Thank you. And it was nice talk. Yeah. Um, I think it's very easy to be introspective when you're at the bottom. Mm. not quite as easy to be introspective <laughs> when you're at the top i think yeah. if you ask me for one message that would be it and again and i say this a million times i'm far from perfect but i'm trying i'm trying every day to be a better person yeah. some days i succeed some days i fail but i'm trying and my heart is in there if yeah. that makes sense absolutely and and i think i think that i measure people differently I don't measure people by money or by accomplishments. Sorry, I don't measure them by, uh, sorry, about by accomplishments or money, but more about the type of person they are and, and what they believe in and, and how they help people and how they really support other people. You know, in other words, their life doesn't just consist of looking after yourself. It also consists of helping other people when you can. Yeah. So I think the biggest message I would say is that if you are a strong individual, if you have got your shit together, that's the time to start helping people. And as you said before, you know, it's funny. In my life, I've known a lot of poor people. I've known a lot of rich people. And again, not to make a sweeping generalization, but what's ironic to me is when it comes time to dipping your hand in your pocket, it's always the poor people that dip more. Yep, yep. The ones that truly can't afford it are the ones that give and give without resentment. They just give. That's who they are. So, you know, I just, I think 2020 is a year where we've got, we've got all the politics going on. We've got the debates, we've got COVID, we've got so many things going on. If we can't take a step back and look at ourselves as a people now, then we're in big trouble because I mean, I don't know if it's going to get any worse. It probably will, as we said. But you know what? This isn't about how much money you've got, how, how many houses you've got, how many cars you've got. None of that. This is about knocking on your next door neighbor's door and saying, do you have enough food with a mask on? Or is there anything you need? <clears throat> again, not, again, not to compare to England. My mother now is 92 years of age. And they're on the second lockdown. And she lives in a, a, an old age home with other people of similar age. And she always tells me people knock on her door hourly saying, is everything okay? Do you need anything? Is there anything you want? That's the kind of people we need to be. We need to be people who don't lock our doors. We need to leave them open like we used to, you know, probably before you were there, you were born, but you know, many years ago, nobody used to lock their doors yeah. and people used to just, your neighbor just used to walk in. Hi, how are you doing? We need to go back to those days. I know that sounds ridiculous, but we were different people then. You know, it, it wasn't about 
Sally's got this or Billy's got that. It was, hey, how can we help? How can we, how can we look after you? You're in our community, you know? And there are, by the way, there are a lot of people who do this on a regular basis. There are a lot of people who help the homeless. There's a lot of people who provide food, who go out their way. Many, many, many good people and even build houses for the homeless. So we just need to have more of people like that rather Absolutely. than sense. Yeah. I, I'm sounding a bit preachy, aren't I? I don't mean to no, 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 you're not. You're not at all. And you know, what, what that, um, you know, reminds me of is that, you know, connection really is the thing, right? And I think when you have lost everything materially, mm-hmm. you really realize that. You really realize that. And what you're saying about that, you know, the poor people are often the most generous people. I think it's because they realize, hey, it's just money. Like, <laughs> and when you get to this, yeah, when you get to this certain point of sort of poorness, you kind of realize like, hey, I'm still alive. Uh, I still, you know, it's like, Breathing. You're right. yeah. And you kind of realize like, actually, I'm okay. Like the worst happened and I'm okay. And, and you lose that fear of losing your money. And that's the thing that rich people, I think, just live with daily is that fear of losing it. But you want to know something funny? And, and again, I don't, yeah. want, don't want to get the conversation to go in a completely different way. But <laughs> um, I came from, and I, I think about this a lot as well. I came mm-hmm. from a very, very poor background. Mm-hmm. My, my father was a very, very hard worker, but we were, my father went bankrupt three times by the time I was 15. Yeah. So we've also gone through a hard time. And what was funny was throughout my career, I don't do it so much now, but throughout my career, whenever I was successful, I'd buy big cars, I'd buy, you know, all, all the expensive toys and stuff. And this is the funny thing. I'd never look after them. And I didn't really care about them. It was the fact that I could get them. Yeah. That was it. It wasn't the actual object. It was the fact that, hey, you know what? When I was younger and all my rich friends had a, uh, I don't know, a Porsche or whatever, hey, guess what? Now I can get a Porsche. And, and I think it, it psychologically to myself, it, it was kind of looking at my youth and saying, okay, well, I wasn't rich then, so I couldn't afford all that stuff then. But now look at all this worthless, useless stuff I've got. So, you yeah. Know, as you said, it's just objects. I mean, yeah. if you lose everything, and so long as you're still breathing and you've got your health, mm-hmm. you know what? You can still fight. Absolutely. So I'm going to shift gears here. Okay. Well. So at the end of the podcast, I always do this little exercise, right? Okay. So I'm going to take you through a little exercise, and I'm very interested to see how this will go with you. You're thinking this is the strangest guest I've ever had. I love it. No, I'm thinking this is going to be wonderful. I love it. You do? Okay. Absolutely love it. Okay. okay. So I have a magic wand. I have just waved it and I have made all your desires come true. Everything that you really, really want, you now have. Okay. So I want you to look around your life and describe for me what this amazing, perfect, ideal existence is like. Oh, what a great point. Okay. Well, I can tell you that very quickly because my wife and I talk about it all the time. So first of all, uh, it's in Maui. Mm. Maui is our favorite place. We go there every year, love it to death. Mm -hmm. So we are living in Maui in a large house 
And the reason that it's large is we're going to be putting on a lot of conferences and support groups for people who are suffering from chronic illnesses and really look after them and help them. And that's gonna, that's, that really is our ideal life. That's what we're working for. That's what we want. That's what we talk about all the time. So, um, yeah, that, that's basically, that is our ideal life. But it, it doesn't have to come with a Ferrari or, a, you know, a helicopter or anything. <laughs> the only reason I said large house was to house people who come and stay. Right. You know? And that's, that's really the game. Yeah. So now looking back okay. from where, where you are in this beautiful house in Maui, right? What, what was the step just before this? What did you need to do to be able to create this existence? What do we, what do we need to do? Okay. Yeah. So, 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 so you're in the future, you're in this beautiful house in Maui right now. Okay. Okay. Now look back in your mind, look back in your memory. What did you need to do to be able to create this? Well, the first thing is not really part of a vision. It's more a timing thing. Mm-hmm. So um, my wife has, well, we have two kids, but yes. I'm a stepdad. Mm-hmm. So her ex-husband lives in LA as well, mm-hmm. which means that we cannot possibly go to Maui just yet because the kids are not old enough. One of them in particular is only 14. Mm-hmm. So it gives us another four or five years to plan this out. Um, I have... Uh, a business called the Small Business Profit. And the idea behind that was uh, we do business loans. I think I referred to it earlier. Yeah. Um, and it's doing very, very well. The only issue that I have with it is I can't help as many people as I want to. Yeah. Because when you're looking at loans without getting too dry about it, uh, loans have got to be underwritten and they're either going to be granted or they're not. It yeah. doesn't matter if you're a nice person. If you've got a 480 FICO, I'm sorry, there's not much we can do for you. Yeah. So my wife and I sat down and thought about another business where we can help those kind of people. And that's when we hit on credit repair. Because we know, because of what's going on in the economy and everything, having good credit right now is just essential. Yeah. It's not something that's nice to have. It's just essential because... If you run out of money, and as I said earlier, there's a good chance you will, where are you going to get money from? Well, if you have a 700 credit score, guess what? You have access to a lot of funds, if that makes sense. So we have embarked on a journey where we've opened a company called, ironically enough, Compassionate Credit Repair, where we are attempting our mission as a company is to fix America's credit one by one. So um, approximately 80% of the population at the moment, you probably don't know this, um, have credit mistakes and errors that have led to them having very low scores, which have led them being financially embarrassed, if you like. We want to put that right person by person. So it is a fee-paying service, but we try and subsidize it as much as we can. But as I said, if you're a vet, we'll help you for free. If you are down on your luck and you really do have a, a problem and an issue we're not going to charge you we don't need to charge you we'll just look after you and if you're an abused abused i'm not going to say abused woman because funnily enough again without going too deeply i've been in a relationship where i was abused so yeah, you know an abused abused survivor people. yeah so um but definitely abused abused people were going to help because mm-hmm. 
Um, my wife puts this very, very well. You know, when you're living in a shelter or whatever, you can't live your life in a, in a woman's shelter. No. And very often these people have no credit or bad credit and their, oh. their partner has either used their credit for something or whatever. It's all part of the process. Yes. Those are the people we want to help. Those are the people that we want to get to. So that's the goal. And we believe that rather than being uh, money-centric, if we are passion-centric and mm-hmm. caring-centric, then everything we want to achieve in life will, will happen. I, I, and listen, <laughs> you might think I'm full of fairy dust, but that's what we believe, and we believe it with all our heart. Well, I believe that with all my heart, too. And I will tell you that what I have learned in my life is that when you leap, the universe catches you. Mm-hmm. But you have to leap first. You have that. to have that faith. I love that. Yeah. I love that. I really do. Wow. Wow. Hey, we could have been neighbors, you know, because when I first came over to America, I was offered two jobs, one in Seattle, mm-hmm. and one in New Jersey. And I'd only ever been to America once before then. And that was, don't laugh, to go to Disneyland. So I thought, stupid me, that all America was like Disneyland. <laughs> works out that it's not quite like that so anyway i had a choice between new jersey and seattle now the place in england i came from and i know you've got family in newcastle but the place i come from is a place called manchester ah uh, yes manchester england is famous because it has more rain per year three times the annual downpour of seattle yep so i remember thinking to myself if they think i'm gonna leave one wet dreary place to go live in another <laughs> wet dreary and I ended up in Jersey. And if you're listening and you're from Jersey, I'm sorry to say this, but I made the wrong choice. <laughs> sorry, Jersey people. At least you're near Manhattan. That's a good thing. Yes. But now you're in LA, so good now choice. I'm in LA. I, went, I went from Jersey uh, to New York to Boston to LA. I've been all the way through the country. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I love it. So we're wrapping up here. Okay. Where can the folks at home find you? Okay. Well, they can find me in my house. (laughs) Stop by any time. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the name of my company is Compassionate Credit Repair. It's a pretty easy name to mention. Now you can go to our website if you want, Mm compassionatecreditrepair.com. Or if you want to go to Facebook, we have a Facebook group with loads of information. Uh, We have a LinkedIn page. Or you can call me if you want. If you want to call me, my phone number is 888-702-3426. You know, if you want to call me and have a chat, I'm not, I don't charge by the hour. If you have a question relating to credit or your finances, or you just want to speak to someone, just pick up the phone. I'm not here to sell you anything, to make you get anything. But it's always nice to know that you have a voice on the other end of the phone that you can speak to. One of the things that drives me nuts in this country is, you know, a company gives you a phone number and you dial it and then you've got to transfer to here, to here, mm-hmm. to here, you know, and that drives me mad. Yeah. So one of the things that we do as a company is we only have one number. So the phone rings for everybody. And when you call, it's always picked up by a human being, never by it. And you don't have to dial 15 different digits to get to the person you need to get to. So there you go. That's lovely. Well, you are great. You are really, really good. I, I really enjoyed this interview. I'm really so glad. I'm so glad. So is there anything else you want uh, the audience to know before we wrap up? 
Um, yeah, 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 there is. Um, COVID. I mean, I, I, I want to just, I, I know I don't want to be a worry wart. I really don't, but I just, I, I just want to tell as many people as I can. I truly believe we're headed for a second uh, lockdown. And that's regardless of who wins the election. So I know that Trump is anti-lockdown, Biden wants another lockdown. I get all that. Yeah. But I think that whoever wins, I don't think we're going to be left with choices, to be quite frank with you. Yeah. And the one thing that scares me is that if we do have a lockdown, that means businesses are closed and suspended. That means jobs are lost. That yeah. means you haven't got money. So the one thing I'm asking you, you, you don't have to join Compassionate Credit Repair. You don't have to pay us to do this. But I am begging you, if you're out there and your credit is less than stellar, don't stick your head in the sand, please. Even buy a book on how to fix your credit. Mm -hmm. There's enough videos out there that if you want to do it yourself, you can do. Just do it. Because there's nothing worse than waking up one morning and saying, we've got no money and we haven't yeah. got access to money. Yeah. You know? It's as simple as that. So again, I don't want to be a worry wart. I'm not saying this, you should all sign up with me. I'm saying, please look after your credit. It's the most important thing you have when you go for a job, when you buy a house, get an apartment, get insurance. There's nothing nowadays that doesn't involve credit. And don't think if you've got bad credit, you can't get good credit because you can. And that's the key. Anyway, I guess that's enough about me talking about business, but <laughs> I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope if anyone's listening, they understand my accent, by the way. Yeah. Oh, no, you have a very clear accent. I do? Okay. Yes. Okay, well, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank this you. has been great. And you're a star. You really oh, are. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, take care. Unless there's anything else you want to ask me or are we done? That's it. I, I think we're good. All right. Well, thank you very, very much. I hope you all enjoy this and give me a call if you want to. All right. Well, guys, take care. Bye. We were walking hand in hand on a white sandy beach. Thank you so much for being here to receive the gift of that story. If you found this episode worthwhile, please pass it on by sharing the link as well as rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the That's Allowed podcast. It costs you nothing, and it makes a huge difference. And speaking of things that cost you nothing and make a huge difference, please stop by my website, thatsallowed.com, to get your free guided ideal scene meditation and to set up your free discovery call today. It would be my honor to help you release your masterpiece to the waiting world.